Well, good morning. It's good to see you all out this morning. Good to have the opportunity to uh, again be before you, to again spend time with you, and to spend time in breaking the bread of God together, to commune with one another, to enjoy singing together, to pray to our God together, and to be in fellowship with one another. It was very good to be with you all last night. If you had the opportunity to be with us, we got to start the talk that we are going to continue today, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but I want to again express appreciation to all for the opportunity to be here. I want to extend appreciation to the elders for inviting me to be here and all of the hospitality that has been shown to us. We've thoroughly enjoyed our visit here. We're very glad to be amongst the saints here at Fairview Park. We talked last night about this concept of what is the gospel. As we talk about what is this message that we are proclaiming, what is this good news we are bringing to the world? And we talked about how the first part of this in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15, is this idea of the time is fulfilled. And we talked about how there's this large backstory to what is going on in the work of Jesus the Messiah. But we talked about how it's more than just a story of one tribe. It is indeed all of time. The fullness of time, Paul says in Galatians, has all been focused in on this moment, that there is this tension within all of the creation awaiting this moment. And what is this moment that has been waited for? Well, if we turn over to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, that's where we're going to begin today again. We talked about how each of the four gospel writers is writing to a different audience. They are writing with different objectives, and yet they are telling, in many ways, the same story from different perspectives. And this is really Mark's summary of what he believes the core message of the gospel to be. And so in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We talked about how this, uh, this line conveniently breaks into three parts, especially when I have a three-part sermon, I break it into three parts. We talked about how the time is fulfilled, and now we're going to talk about what is actually taking place at the fullness of time, and it is this proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's language that's very similar, I think, to gospel. That's language that comes naturally to our lips as Christians, and yet it is language that is not inherent to our culture. We do not live in a kingdom. Even in the kingdoms that exist today, they're a far cry and a very different type of kingdom than the kingdoms that existed in the first century. And so in order to understand what is being proclaimed here, we have to understand what is the context of this message? What is the concept that Jesus is talking about? Well, again, Mark has been cluing us in that there is backstory to what's going on here. Jesus is not appearing out of the blue. He is coming as the culmination of something. And so Jesus is coming at the culminations, particularly, I think, of the prophets and the prophetic reign. Turn over, if you will, to a passage we looked at last night in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is just really required reading in order to understand what's going on here. And I think I just said Isaiah 53, and I think it's going to say Isaiah 53. I actually mean Isaiah 52. I apologize for that. Isaiah 52 and 53, we read the latter part of this that discusses the suffering servant. But before the suffering servant passages, Isaiah actually discusses the idea of the good news that is coming. 
And so in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7, Isaiah says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now Isaiah is also talking in a context. Isaiah is speaking to a people who have lost hope in this truth that their God reigns. Isaiah and the prophets are being read by people who have been taken into captivity, who have been taken into exile. And Isaiah draws on this image. Think of how good it would be to receive the news that we are no longer in captivity, that we are no longer at war, that we are no longer suffering under the bondage of our oppressors. But think about how welcome that news would be. If you actually think about the the feet of a messenger in the first century. Remember, they're all wearing sandals and it's in the middle of a desert. There's actually nothing very inherently attractive about those feet. And yet it is because of the good news that those feet bring. It's the good news that this tired, dusty messenger brings. And the culmination of it is that your God reigns. You see, in an ancient context, there would be many nations that would look at the fall of Jerusalem and would say, ah, this shows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was in fact not who he claimed to be. And in fact, several different prophetic books, particularly in the book of Lamentations, God's going to have to dispel that notion that in fact the fall of Jerusalem was the work of God. It was not him being overpowered by Baal or by Marduk or any of the other gods. It is in fact all under his control and that he continues to be the king of not just Israel, but the universe. This is the message that Jesus came to bring. Your God reigns. Now, that may actually not seem very impressive to us in our context, because we hear that and we're like, well, yeah, duh. Like, yeah, we said that in Genesis 1. We We already knew that part. We knew that God has created all things. We knew that God is the source and the origin of all things. Why, is, why would that be significant to say your God reigns? That's just a fundamental truth of the universe. Why does that make a big difference that your God reigns? Whether somebody accepts that or not, that doesn't change that, does that? And yet, Mark has said this is the fulfillment of time. Paul has said this is the culmination of all time is God reigning. There was something changing. Well, what's the change here? What's the distinction here? What's the difference here? Turn over, if you will, in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. I would hope we would all recognize that the difference is not whether God is king or not. I would hope all of us who have proclaimed allegiance and loyalty, and we'll talk about this in the second lesson, Those of us who have proclaimed our loyalty to God, I hope we recognize that God always has been the king. But there's some sort of culmination. There's some sort of change in the relationship of king and kingdom with the coming of Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 2 is one of the most significant Old Testament passages in understanding the nature of the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, all of these prophetic passages that tend to be kind of confusing and they're kind of hard to read through. John makes it even more confusing in Revelation. But all of this language is talking about the fundamentally different nature of this kingdom. 
that this kingdom was even going to be different, in fact, from Israel. That Israel was never meant to be the fulfillment of God's vision for a kingdom, but instead it was a shadow. It was a forerunner. It was a type. It was an image that was pointing the way towards a greater fulfillment. And hear how Daniel describes this kingdom. Daniel chapter 2, I think, is a well-known passage to all of us. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. He challenges his wise men to interpret the dream. None of them can, and they say, actually, we know this, this Hebrew, this Israelite slave, he is supposed to be gifted with dreams. And so he comes and he interprets the dream. He actually tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and then interprets it. And so we see in the interpretation of this dream in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. It says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel says the kingdom that is coming is unlike any kingdom that has ever been before. Daniel sees this, this vision of this, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar has seen this vision of this statue of different parts of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron and clay. And Daniel says this is all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, Daniel is even understanding this is prophetic. This is reaching forward into future kingdoms. There is a cycle of history that is going through human history. In fact, it continues very much to this very day where kingdoms rise and fall. Kingdoms come to power through God and then they begin to abandon these things. They elevate themselves above God and God brings them low. And there's this eternal cycle that goes through this and it goes to Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and the barbarian invasions and the Persians and the Sasanians. And you could go through all of human history and see this cycle of rise and fall. And yes, even our own nation is a part of that rise and fall. And God says, yet there is something coming that is going to stop that cycle. There's something coming that is going to end that cycle of oppression, that cycle of evil kingdoms rising and falling. And it is a kingdom unlike the statue. In fact, in its very composition, it's very material, whereas the statue is of the precious metals of the world, the stone is natural. The stone is uncarved. It comes, it's literally basically a big hunk of mountain that comes and crushes the statue. All the works of men are undone by this natural thing. And so again, as we talked about last night, you could see how an Israelite people who are reading these prophecies are saying, ah, this is going to be Israel. This is going to be us. This is, we are going to be this elevated kingdom that is going to put an end to all these things. And you can perhaps see the misunderstanding from all these prophecies of David returning, of a new law coming that, they would think, okay, this is going to be us overthrowing the Romans. You could see how in their context, they would hear the, the tales of oppression and exodus. They would say, God is coming to save us from Rome. And he's going to send a new David to overcome these things. And yet buried within these various passages of the prophets, we see that there was also going to be something very different in the composition of this kingdom. Turn over to one more Old Testament passage in, Dan in Jeremiah chapter 31. It was not just going to be the composition and the makeup of this kingdom that was going to be different. It was going to be the composition and makeup of the people that was going to be different. 
that the people that were going to be under this kingdom were going to be transformed by being a part of this kingdom. In Jeremiah 31, again, another well-known Old Testament passage that describes what is often called the new covenant relationship that Jeremiah prophesies. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, the prophet says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. We hear in the very makeup of this kingdom, of this new covenant people, that there's something very different here. That this is not merely a kingdom that you have allegiance to because that's where you physically live. This is not a kingdom you have allegiance to because that's just what you were born into. This is a kingdom that you have allegiance to because you know the king. Because you have a relationship with the king. He has not just ruled over you, he has forgiven you. In Isaiah's language, he has brought salvation to you. The iniquities of men have been removed. Now when you read this language, you could could easily see, okay, well that doesn't make sense that a man could do that. How does a man do these kinds of things. You can perhaps see how the Israelite readers perhaps would read this and be like, okay, that's got to be some sort of like figurative language. He's forgetting, you know, he's he's atoning for our mistakes of the past. He's doing things different than what we've done. And in that capacity, he's making a different type of kingdom. But remember, this is the culmination of all things. This is the fulfillment of all things. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, All nations would be blessed. This was never meant to just be about Israel. It was that through Israel, all the world would be transformed. So what is the difference of this kingdom? Let's go look at what Jesus himself says. Turn over, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. You've perhaps heard, and I've certainly heard it preached as well, and I think in perhaps a a flattening of what's going on here, that all of this is predicting the church. I think there's there's a kernel of truth to that, because the church is absolutely an outpost and a forerunner of the kingdom. The church plays a critical role in the kingdom, but I think it a mistake to read the kingdom and the church as equal terms. I don't think that's what's going on here, that those are identical terms. The church is part of the kingdom. The church is in many ways, I think, the vanguard of the kingdom, the front ranks of the kingdom, the people that are proclaiming the kingdom. We again used that image last night of that crier who is proclaiming the coming of the king. But the church is not the fulfillment of the kingdom. It is not the culmination of the kingdom. Matthew's gospel is filled with this language of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is constantly comparing it to different things. He compares it to a field filled with treasure. He compares it to the lost sheep. He compares it to all these different things. And it's it's almost as if Jesus is trying to paint this picture 
of something that's difficult to put into words. But perhaps one of the things that is the most illuminating of it is the prayer that he teaches his apostles. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, Jesus says, So do not be like the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's this key duology, this key phrase that's going on here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? There's a connection here that I think Matthew is clearly trying to draw. He consistently uses this language of the kingdom of heaven. Other gospels will use the kingdom of God. There's some sort of connectivity between this idea of God's eternal presence in heaven and what he's going to do here. There's a connectivity between that. Jesus, I think, is calling us to understand that there is something going on now. There is something going on here in his person and his presence. This is not merely predicting something that will come to pass. Jesus is saying, again, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Something is going on here. To understand that, I said one more Old Testament passage. There's another one. Go to Genesis. There is a picture that is being painted in the, gospel, or in the book of Genesis. Actually, I think I could use the term the gospel of Genesis. That might sound weird, but I think it's there. I think every book is the gospel. Every book proclaims the good news. But in the book of Genesis, in the language that's going on here, perhaps sometimes we have difficulty reading it because of translations, because we're in a different time and culture, but there's an image being painted in the book of Genesis. And it's using the language of temple. It's using the language of this construction that's going on. We don't have time to get into too much detail of this, although I think it's fascinating. But the Garden of Eden that's being constructed, the very physical earth that's being constructed, it's this image of a temple. And we know that a temple is a place that God's presence dwells. Well, and in the very center of this temple is man, the image of God. In many pagan temples, at the very center of the temple, you would have the idol, the image. It's actually the same word of that God in the center of the temple. At the center of creation, though, is humanity. It's part of the reason you don't make graven images of God. It actually doesn't only denigrate God, it denigrates humanity. We are the image bearers of God. We don't need to create them. God has made them himself for himself. And so mankind is put in the heart of this temple to take care of the temple, to care for this physical creation, so that in Genesis chapter 3, It says in verse 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now we know that it doesn't go very well from there because the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But notice before everything goes bad, there's this image of God in the midst of his dwelling place. Of God in communion with man and woman. God in the temple of creation, 
Now, the terrible tragedy is that that is sundered. That the rebellion of man, the rebellion of the fallen spiritual beings tears that relationship. It sunders it, it hinders it, it gets in the way of it, and that sin creates that partition between man and God. That sinful man cannot be in the presence of holy God. And then the biblical narrative is the repairing of that relationship, not through man's efforts, but God reaching down to repair that relationship, to bring once more that overlap between God's dwelling place and our dwelling place. And so when Jesus is teaching his disciples, I tell you to pray that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see Jesus using that language of overlap? That Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what we're doing. We are bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. We are bringing God's presence to earth. And that might sound really grandiose. That might sound like, oh, that's, hold on, wait a second, what are you talking about here? Think about this. What does Jesus say? He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So go with me for a moment on this. The kingdom of God is this union again. The repairing of the relationship between heaven and earth. The repairing of the relationship between God and man. What does that look like but the person of Jesus Christ? When we hear the word, the kingdom of God is hand, I think we often talk about a time element, that the kingdom of God is near. And that's present in this language. But it's also spatial. It's also presence. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is close. Where is he saying the kingdom of God is? He says, it's me. I am the union between heaven and earth. The great confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is to say that in the person of Jesus is both fully human and fully God. That Jesus himself is that linchpin between heaven and earth. What we proclaim when we proclaim him as Lord is the fundamental truth of the kingdom of God. That God, through his own person, through his own initiative, is healing the divide between heaven and earth. Now, sometimes this might sound a little odd because sometimes we haven't preached this well. But go over to John, if you will. In the Gospel of John, perhaps this is a passage you're even thinking of. In John chapter 18. Because often there, is, there has been a, a push against this, I think a push against the, the earthly connection of God's kingdom. I think we have sometimes tried to divide it because we look at the world and we're like, this doesn't look like the kingdom. This, this is filled with sin. It's filled with messed up people. It's filled with all these things. And I think Jesus would say, yes, that's, that's the point. That's why I came. But we look at that and we're like, that doesn't make sense. And so I think there's been sometimes an effort to actually try to increase the distance between heaven and earth and to increase the distance and to remind that that's, that's going to be the difference is that God will take us away from all of this, that God will remove us from all of this terrible thing. And we might turn to a passage like John chapter 18, where Jesus is before Pilate. And in John chapter 18 and verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? 
Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate said to him, okay, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? We read that language where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And I think we read that and think, my kingdom is not in this world. But that's not what he said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's drawing a comparison. He's drawing a contrast between how Pilate's kingdom, remember he's a servant of Rome, how Pilate's kingdom operates. That if Pilate was threatened, his soldiers would come to defend him. His soldiers would use violence to protect him. And Jesus says, my kingdom's not like your kingdom. Again, remember the distinction between the gospel of Rome, the euangelion of Rome, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a gospel of sword. It's not a gospel of violence. It's not a gospel that uses the ways of the world to establish itself. Jesus said, my kingdom is different. But he's not saying my kingdom isn't here. He's saying my kingdom's different than yours. And in fact... In the resurrection, if you turn to the final passage we'll look at in Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus is resurrected, it is the the statement. It is the culmination. We'll talk more about this in in a little bit in the second lesson. But that is the stamp of authority. It is the, the proclamation that Jesus is who he has claimed to be, that he is both God and man. It is the proof that God the Father has delivered God the Son through the power of God the Spirit. Which, by the way, wouldn't have that been fascinating language to work out in the second century? But this was the proof of the kingdom. With the inbreaking of Jesus, with the defeat of death, with the destruction of the power of the Satan. Jesus then says in Matthew 28 and verse 18, and read this perhaps with new eyes, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said it has happened In me, heaven and earth has come together, and I have authority over it all. I am the king, and now you go to proclaim the kingdom. You go to begin the process of building the kingdom. Now, we're going to talk in in the second sermon about what our part in that is, and our part is not to, to finish the kingdom, The kingdom is never going to be finished by our efforts. The kingdom is never going to come in its fullness by some great work that we do. The kingdom is going to be brought to its final culmination, its great finish at the end of the age by the king's return. But what it means for us is that what we do now echoes through eternity. That's from a movie. I just realized I stole that quote. I don't remember from what. That's from Gladiator. Wow, that was totally unintentional. What we do now has eternal significance. What we are doing now in building up the kingdom of God, Paul says God will affirm the good works that we are doing. 
We are building for the kingdom. What we do in establishing churches, what we do in baptizing new converts, what we do in raising our children in the faith of the Lord, what we do is we proclaim the good news of God, what we do is we live our daily lives in the image of Christ is we build for the kingdom now. We do not just do something that dozens or hundreds or thousands of years in the future will get to get away from all of this. We are building the kingdom now. We are doing the work of the Lord now. We are proclaiming the coming return of the king. Do you see how we have taken in many ways the role of a John the Baptist? Making straight the way for the Lord. That's what we do here. We bring justice. We bring righteousness. We bring mercy and grace to a world that has forgotten what that is. We come into the strongholds of the enemy, to the strong man's house, and we plunder it. Through the power of Christ, through the power of the Spirit within us, we are victorious over the dark forces of this world, over the kingdoms of the world. That has significance now, brothers and sisters. We're not just biding our time. We're not just running out the clock. We're not just kneeling towards the end zone, more sports metaphors. We are working now. Do you see why Jesus has such urgency in his commission for the gospel? Do you see why he has such passion for teaching his disciples what you're about to do as you go and build this kingdom, as you go and work through the power of the Spirit to do these things? Jesus says it is time to get to work. And it is time for us as well to do the good things that God has set out for us to do. Not because we're trying to build up some sense of credit so we can get to the good place when we die. We are doing the good work of the Lord now because we've been called to work in the kingdom of God so that when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, we are ready for the king. We are not caught off guard. Remember the parable of the 10 virgins. Jesus says when the kingdom comes, there will be some who are not ready. There will be some who have not kept their lamps trimmed. There will be some who were not ready for the coming of the king. He says, you be ready for the king. He says, you've been entrusted with talents. You've been entrusted with treasures. Don't just bury it in the field. Don't just say, okay, I'm just going to wait for the master to get back and then I'll give it back to him. He says, go and do good work with it. Go and produce 10, 20, 100 fold fruit with your work. Do you see how all these parables language, we can go into so much more depth with this, but all that parable language is giving you the image of somebody who knows the master is going to return, that the king is going to return. And in the meantime, we build up good works so that when the king comes, we offer it up not as proof of our goodness, but as proof of his, as the good things that he has done through us. And he takes that, and he takes it into himself, and he brings it into eternity. One ancient source said that if anything, if anything has not been taken into Christ, it will not live forever. What we do now will echo in eternity. Thank you for listening. Let's go to class.